You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Uh, we're doing our thing here in the studio, each our respective studios still. Um, we're actually, you know, kind of getting the hang of this a, a little bit, I think. <laughs> it's yeah. getting easier. It's getting easier. Yeah, it's kind of like we, we started. We I, kinda... I'm learning like how to set up my stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we kind of got uh, into, uh, you know, back during the beginning of the pandem- pandemic, we kind of got in the, the a pretty good rhythm and then you know we realized well maybe we weren't gonna die if you came in so that was helpful and then (laughs) we had to kind of get back to it this time but this one's again more scheduling conflicts we're we're i think hopefully we're done with the pandemic so uh seems that we are but anyhow we just have a lot of family obligations that we have to take care of yeah So. so anyway well, that being said, I, I, let's go ahead and we'll get to what people are actually here for and, and yeah. we'll do some Bible. Like, so we are in chapter 13, right? Is that where we left off of Second oh, Samuel? We're on chapter, th- yeah, in chapter 13, we're going to be picking up in verse 10. Uh, again, a quick, uh, uh, I don't know, parental warning here. Uh, we are still talking about L- sexual violence and rape. So, uh, yeah, listener discretion. Yeah, yeah listener warning. So, yeah. And uh, we want want people to be aware that, you know, we're going to be going into some sensitive topics. But I mean, that's over and over again. I am just so impressed by how well the Bible deals with real world human situation and human conflict and hurt and sin. And it's so direct and it's so counter to what we often see within the church community uh there's no euphemisms uh there well i mean there are but it's just the constraints of the language it's as direct as you can be within the hebrew and it's right there on the page and i don't know what we think we're adding when we try to pretty this up when we try to make it a little bit more um palatable for the masses you know, we really end up just kind of uh, losing a lot of the punch and the power behind what God is saying. And and I think we need to see that God can look right at the heart of all the ugliness that is the human condition, and he can still step into it. And I, and that was one of the thoughts I was having, and I know this is kind of a rabbit trail, but I was, um, you know, I was thinking about that the other day as I'm, I'm reading through Samuel, which is so violent and so gory and so graphic. And, you know, all of this was written down before Jesus arrived. Not only did Mm -hmm. it happen, all of it was written down before he decided to say, you're worth me. He probably he decided this since the beginning of the earth, but before he actually made that move to join in humanity. And, you know, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. That that's. That's amazing that we would actually have a God who cares that much because our God's the only one who does that. I mean, he's the only one who says, I can see everything horrible and ugly about you as a race, as an individual. I love you anyway. 
and I'm still good. I still want to be there with you. And so when we, when we soften these stories, we make it sound as if God can't do that, that he doesn't want to do that. And, you know, I think any of us who've actually lived in the real world need a God who can step into the real world and not some Disney-fied version of the Bible. So anyway, that's my initial rabbit trail. I'm sure there's going to be a few more before this episode's over. So we're going to pick up in verse 10. Um, Amnon has laid his trap for Tamar. Tamar has been directed to go to Amnon's house by her father. Uh, Amnon has a friend named Yonadab, uh, Jonadab in English, uh, who is crafty or wise. And uh, she has made these heart-shaped dumplings, these cakes for her brother. And he has sent all of the servants out of the room, just like Potiphar's, uh, sorry, just like um, Joseph in Egypt did when his brothers were revealed. And we're seeing that first connection between the story of Joseph and the story of Tamar. And we talked about last week how the writer of Samuel actually uses the story of Joseph in Egypt and he flips it. He totally reverses it and he begins Tamar's story with the beginning, with the end of Joseph's story. So um, when it just because it bears repeating, when Joseph sends the servants away, he reveals who he is so he can reestablish relationship with his family. When Amnon sends the servants away and reveals who he is, he destroys relationship within his family. So, verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she'd made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. So Tamar's doing everything that Amnon and her father ask her. She attempts to honor this supposedly sick man's request. I remember in the beginning, he really put forth that image when he was talking to Yonadab. He's talking with this gasping size. And then Yonadab says, lay down in your bed, pretend to be sick when the king comes. And we're told that he pretends to be sick. And when he takes hold of her, what is interesting here is this is the same word that we have back in Judges 19 when the Levite seizes his concubine and throws her out to the mob. And we, t- we spent a lot of time on Judges 19. Uh, and it's also the same word we find again in Judges 19 where he seizes her body to butcher her. So we, this word has this connotation of violence. There, there's nothing loving or kind that has anything to do with this word, which is not what we should expect from a man who loves this woman so much that he's dying because he can't have her. So we we have this contrast that's being presented in the language, but also that connection back to Judges 19. Lie with me. The last time we heard these words was back in Genesis 39, 7. And this is what Potiphar's wife says to Mm. Joseph. And when so when he refuses, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, um, she actually seizes his coat. We have that word there again. So the, the verses are tied together, not just with the lie to me, but also with that word seize. And she rips his coat at that moment in time. So I, I think you meant lie verse with 12. me. You said lie <laughs> to me. 
did I say? Uh, oh, yeah, I've been watching that too. Uh, so <laughs> interesting show. But, but yeah, so but you see how the writer is beginning to pick up more and more of these themes with Joseph. And, and so we, we go from the reun being reunited with his family to, to this episode with uh, Potiphar's wife. And we have the t a total reversal here on so many levels. So verse 12. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. So she pleads with Amnon. She does, he, she's saying, you know, don't violate, don't humiliate me is another translation for this word. And we see that word again in Judges 19. The old man offers up the daughter and the concubine to the mob so that uh, they can violate or humiliate the women rather than the Levite. Now, the ESV translates uh, Naval as outrageous, and that's the Navala, that's the word here. Um, Alter translates it as um, scurrilous. And we find that root, again, Judges 19, uh, 24, in those old man's, in the old man's plea that, you know, this, this, this horrible, outrageous, scurrilous thing should not be done in Israel. And so we've got some very definite ties back to what is probably the most sickening story in mm -hmm. all of the Bible. And so the other phrase that she says is such a thing is not done in Israel. We find that in Genesis 34, 7. Now, this is the rape of Dina. And we the verse reads the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous scurrilous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done Tamar kind of tweaks it a little bit but it's almost an exact quote such a thing must not be done in Israel um now we got to remember back to the rape of Dina uh, this is when her outraged brothers, her, her angry brothers, come to her defense and they slaughter an entire city. They, they take out everyone in Shechem. And a careful uh, reader is going to realize that this is foreshadowing of what's getting ready to happen. We're, we're being told that the outcome for Amnon's not going to be good. And we also have the slightest hint right here of 1 Samuel 25. And we're going to see how this gets tied in even more as we progress through the story. When David is confronted by Abigail, remember, uh, Abigail urges David not to attack her encampment and her family and servants. And the root of her husband's name is Nabal. It's the same word, Nabala, Nabal. And we talked about that when we talked about Abigail and Nabal, that this means a foolish man. And so it has this, this connection. And in Choosing to identify Amnon as, as a Nabala, that he's going to be doing something that's foolish or outrageous, she's actually revealing that Jonadab's wisdom is nothing but foolishness. This is what this kind of wisdom results in, even though, yes, it works to get what you want because it's out of alignment with what God wants, it's foolishness. And the, it's a very subtle way, but still a very direct way of saying, you need to be thinking about what you're doing. How do you want to be perceived? Because if you're not doing what God wants you to do, are you really a good representative for Israel? And we got to remember, Amnon's the heir apparent. 
he's the oldest son of David. So we're supposed to be wondering what kind of man is he and where is he going to draw those lines? So verse 13, um, he says, uh, sorry, Tamar's still talking. As for me, where would I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in, in Israel. So she's very pointed with that. She, she's trying to reason with him. She's trying to explain to him how damaging this is going to be to her, which he should have completely paid attention to if he truly mm -hmm. loves her. And then she's also saying, this is going to be damaging to you. And, you know, appeal to the vanity, appeal to his sense of pride. She's trying everything in her power to get his attention. So 13b, now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. This is where there's a lot of debate, um, because there's two possibilities with what she's saying here. Uh, would David allow Amnon to marry his sister? Would David allow such a violation of the Torah? We we don't know. Uh, David seems pretty comfortable with casting aside the Torah when it suits his purposes. And the other thing, too, is by allowing her to marry her brother, he's also taking her out of that arena of being a political pawn and being able to be used to cement some of those treaties and trade deals that kings use their daughters for. So we don't have a good answer for this. Other alternative is that she she's saying whatever she can say to get out of the situation. She could be straight up lying to him, saying, this is my only way out. I, I need to say whatever I need to say in order to avoid what's getting ready to happen here. And there, there's arguments for both sides. Um, but this is this is really the basis for why the rabbis tried to. Um, say that she was not his sister they weren't so much worried about this incestuous rape that's i mean the rape already makes it bad but they weren't really worried about that added component but they were worried about how guilty this would make david of a sin if it is indeed true so they have to to falsify the statement in order to to make it um something okay to be said about David and they're trying to defend his reputation. And we've already seen, cause we took time to look at that when we, we went over uh, David and Bathsheba, how far they're willing to go to deny even what's on the page in order to vindicate David's actions. So verse 14, that he would not listen to her and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Now alters translation. This is why I love alter. Alter preserves kind of that, that energy that runs through this verse. Uh, he, it's far more jarring. It's far more forceful. It's supposed to have that impact. He overpowered her and abused her and vetted her. I mean, it, the, the ESV, even though it's literal, it still doesn't have that, that same just in-your-face kind of quality that Alter's does, which is more in keeping with the Hebrew. Now, unlike the male Joseph, who was able to, to escape, uh, Tamar, she's at the mercy of this man with a single-minded purpose. Uh, Amnon's decided what he's going to do. She's not going to get away. And Rashi, uh, I, I do love the fact that Rashi notes that the fact that he has to overpower her really speaks to the fact that she resisted. 
And Arbanel claims that she she resisted to the point she did damage. And you can look that up if you want to see exactly what kind of damage he speculates she inflicted on him. But um, the, the reason why there's so much speculation is because when we get to verse 15, there is just this huge shift. I mean, you can hear the gears grinding as, as we go from, you know, fifth gear to reverse without a clutch. I mean, it, it is just brutal. But the writer wants you to see how harsh and how just cruel that Amnon's reversal is in the face of everything that's going on. And so it says, and then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Amnon says, get up, go. And the reversal is so complete, and the writer presents it so well that even what Amnon says to her is a reversal. Because in verse 11, he says, come lie down. Now he says, get up, go. So you have anonyms, but then you also have a reverse mm -hmm. order. And, and that's how skilled this writer is, that he's going to even pay attention to that little detail. So hatred's replaced love, aversion and disgust have replaced desire. And, um, you know, any reason we're going to put in here is going to, to be speculation. Let's just be clear about that. The writer does not tell us, absolutely doesn't even try to explain why that Amnon makes this shift. And it could be that, you know, the only reason why he was so attracted to her goes back to the beginning of the story. He didn't see how he could do anything to her. He believed it was beyond his power to do anything to her. And so, you know, a spoiled young rich kid, he's a prince. Maybe the biggest appeal was the fact that this was the one thing that was off limits. And we all know people like that. People who, who want something simply because they know it's off limits. People who may not even have thought of wanting something until someone actually said, hey, by the way, you can't have that. Yep. So. <laughs> and so the, the other thing, you know. If we want to try to impart some humanity into Amnon, which really I don't care about doing because I'm just that heartless, uh, is that, you know, by even looking at her, he's having to, to look at what his own sin is. He's going to have to look and confront himself and what he's done just by seeing her and that he couldn't bear it. That tells me that, you know, people who promote that view say that are basically saying that he's got a conscience. We have seen no evidence of that in the text. Uh, you know, this is not, he saw her and was overcome with passion and he made a horrible decision. This was, he plotted this out. And the fact that he even said, he doesn't want bread. He doesn't want food. The words that even Yonadab and, and David had used to, to describe what Tamar was supposed to fix. He wants this blah, blah. He wants he wants the labab the the the, the heart shaped cakes. He knew what he was after, and so um, whatever the reason is, the fact that he allows hatred to overtake his desire and supposed love for her, uh, it just leads him deeper into sin, as we see revealed in Tamar's response. But before we get there, we need to look at another link this has back to that rape of Dina. 
not only do we have such a thing should not be done in Israel, um, after Shechem had raped Dina, we're told his soul was drawn to Dina. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, and said, get me this girl for a wife. So that's Genesis 34, 3 through 4. And the, the implication of what Tamar is saying is such a thing's not done in Israel. It might be done other places. And we're, we're seeing that it, from Genesis, it was definitely something that was done in Canaan. It was something that was practiced by the Canaanite kings. This is what those kings like other nations practiced, which is one thing we can't have in Israel. That's what the whole story of Saul was there to, um, to show us. but. We also see something interesting that this this statement that was made by these two brothers who were so angry over the abuse their sister had had encountered that such a thing should not be done in Israel has become the standard for Israel that this is a something you don't do you don't violate women in Israel and your sisters are to be protected in Israel in contrast to the Canaanite nations, which is totally at odds with every other culture around them. And it's fabulous that Israel can even make such a statement about itself when you consider the state of the rest of the nations of the world at this time. And when we see this happening and we, we think back and we contrast it with that, with that story, we are really being shown that in this moment, Amnon is not just like a Canaanite king. He's worse than a Canaanite king. That's how evil he is. And when you think about who the Canaanite kings were, we talk about the sons of God. We talk about the, the um, fact that a lot of these kings were representatives or the embodiment of gods, maybe even direct descendants of the Elohim. Now we have some things to be scared of because, you know, when we get into uh, the book of Enoch or the book of Jubilees and we get the, the, um, the story of how demons came into being, which are the disembodied spirits of these kings. Oh my goodness. How evil is, Am <clears throat> sorry, how evil is Amnon that this is what he's being compared to. So Tamar's response, though, uh, tells us that Amnon throwing her out is, is even worse. And it also reveals a lot about the attitude towards rape within this culture and how it really differs from modern perception. Uh, so verse 16, we're going to read it. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong and sending me for this wrong and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. So. For the second time, we're told that he doesn't listen to her. Amnon's sin is only enacted when he refuses to listen to her. So uh, there's, there's a lesson in there, I'm sure, but we're not going to make too much of it on this episode. But when we, as modern readers, read this, if we're being really objective and we, we stop trying to read it as in, okay, what the Bible says is right, and I'm just going to accept what the Bible has to say, but really think about how this would play out in our culture. It makes no sense. We would think that the first reaction of a woman who's raped is to get away from her rapist. And she's begging to be 
for him to let her stay. She's telling him, what you're doing in sending me away is worse than actually being raped. That tells you something about her mindset and about the cultural values that we just don't have at play today. And we, and we need to be okay with their culture being different. And what we, the thing is about rapists in this society is they owed a debt to their mm-hmm. victim. That was how it was viewed. He had just ruined all of her future prospects for a marriage. And for a woman, being married wasn't just a matter of love and romance. It was the source of security. It was making sure you got to eat on a regular basis. It made sure that you could have children, which made sure you got taken care of in your old age. There were no such things as nursing homes. The worst thing you could be was a woman who had never been married, who had never experienced any kind of security financially Mm -hmm. within your family. You needed this to survive because you did not survive outside of community within this kind of culture. And there's just no getting around this. We can be kind of autonomous today. Uh, we, we don't have to have a lot of impact from other people within our culture, or at least we think we don't have to. We, we discount the fact that, you know, food is raised by someone else. It's shipped by someone else. It's put on the grocery store shelves by someone else. And we, you know, we've got all these things that are brought into our lives by other people, but we never have to interact with the people directly. The difference back then is you didn't get to skip those steps. The person, you knew the person who grew your food. You probably were the person who grew Mm -hmm. your food. And so you need community to survive and you had to recognize it where we can ignore it. Now, as a king's daughter, um... She can't just marry anyone. That's just a fact of her day. If a king's daughter just marries any old Joe Blow off the street, uh, that's a shame to her father. But her value as a political piece, uh, as a pawn within any of David's political gambits, has just gone. Because now she doesn't have that status of a woman who's been, uh, you know, protected. She's not a woman who's pure anymore. She's not a woman who is um you know there's some doubt about her own character about how much she might have contributed to it it doesn't matter how many words of defense are spoken on her behalf because let's face it victim blaming's real mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. always has been and so she she was always going to be in doubt and, and any king that would be any you know any foreign king that would be presented with this this daughter who had failed to maintain those standards would actually see that as an insult. And so it, it very well could have endangered her life. So to cast her out instead of immediately making that move to marry her was to leave her in a completely untenable position. And it was in direct defiance of the Torah. A rapist fulfilled his debt to his victim by offering her the security and protection of marriage. And so Tamar says that being denied that right, be given that um, security and protection, it is worse than the violence she had just endured. And so she resists being removed. She, she resisted at the same level that she had resisted being raped. So verse 17, he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. 
Now, Alter picks up on the chilling nature of what Amnon's saying. He's polite to his servant, but he is just being contemptuous towards Tamar. And, you know, she's this woman. She's no longer mm -hmm. his sister. She is something that has to be removed, you know, and when you think about all of the plotting and scheming he went through to get her in there to begin with, and now it's so easy just to cast her aside. Um, he, he goes so far as to bolt the door. He doesn't even want her to be able to return. Well, the last time we had a bolted door where, where a woman could not return was with the Levite and the concubine in Gibeah. And she was found dead on the doorstop, uh, door uh, threshold. So verse 18, now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves for this, for this was the virgin daughters. I don't even know what I wrote here. This was the virgin daughters of the king were dressed. And so the servants put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore and laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. So we have a little hand at, at the reversal where David's servants were sent to, to collect Bathsheba. Amnon uses his servants to, to um, remove her. So he's being shown as being even worse than David. And we need to remember that, yes, David um, had to kill Uriah to get it done, but at least he did offer um, marriage. So... We talked all about, you know, the pros and cons and the good and bad of that with Bathsheba. I'm not going to go back into that. What we do need to remember here is that in the book of Samuel, clothes mm -hmm. are important. Uh, we, we've talked about this a whole lot. So it's almost weird in some respects that you've got this boom, 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 you know, just this narrative that's just moving right along. And then all of a sudden we're stopped and we're told what she's wearing. Okay. Important for two th two reasons. Number one, she's dressed as a virgin. Okay, she's not out there dressed in something that is. I'm just gonna use the word. She's not dressed slutty. She she she's not you know showing off everything, trying to attract a man. She's wearing the the outfit that her father gave her as a way to help protect her, and she is still attacked. So saying that what a woman wears is what leads to rape, again, the Bible is showing you clearly that's not the case, and we need to pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. The other thing um, we're being shown here is this word th that is being used for a long robe. It's only found in one other place in the Bible, and that's Genesis 37. It's the description that we have of Joseph's coat, the coat that Joseph's father gave mm -hmm. him. So the fact that we have this word appear in these in these two stories only, no other stories, just these two stories, um, really ties us back again to that Joseph narrative. Right. And, and, and this is where we should also clarify that the, the description in the Hebrew of Joseph's coat is it goes to his wrist and his ankles, right? It's not mm -hmm. a brightly colored coat. It's not a coat of many colors. So I think we should kind of clarify right. that, too, in in how that plays into mm -hmm. it's not a garment to bring well i mean sure joseph's brought <laughs> brought him a lot of attention but it's not the wrong kind of attention. the kind of attention it's not exactly something that you know you can't blame the way she was dressed it's not revealing <laughs> yeah 
yeah, it's not revealing. I mean, specifically, uh, even here, the, the garment with sleeves, you know, it's got the long sleeves. It, she is covered. And, and so the, it's very specific that she was not trying to draw the wrong kind of attention. Now, um, in both the stories, these ornate robes are torn. Tamar tears hers in response to the violence committed against her. Joseph's coat is torn as part of the violence committed against him. You remember it was to, to, to deceive Jacob into thinking he's dead. Tamar tears this, the robe that her father gave her to reveal what's been done. Joseph's robe that his father gave him was torn to conceal what had been done. So we have this, again, that reversal. And, you know, in this moment, Tamar is incredible uh, because she doesn't slink away in shame. She doesn't hide anything in some misguided attempt at um, protecting the family's reputation. She doesn't try to avoid division. She isn't part of some kind of satanic agenda to cause division. She she is speaking the truth and she is revealing what's happened to her she's on the street she's been kicked out she's got ashes on her head she has torn her clothes she is wailing she she's not covering this up and i'm like that is so incredibly brave because the automatic almost instinctual response for a woman who's been in this situation is to hide it's to conceal you to go out into the streets and let people know that this has happened. This is guts on this gal's part. Mm -hmm. and, and I am just, I, I was just blown away when I realized that. So, you know, we, we, we've got to remember who she is. We, we are being presented with a very strong woman. She attempted to reason with Amnon from the very beginning and he refused. Uh, she tried to mitigate the damage of what he had done and tried to even protect him. And again, he refused. And then she refuses to hide in the shadows. And you just, I, I don't know, I, I'm really, I, I'm, I was just blown away with her because so often she's presented as this tragic figure instead of this, this figure of strength. And yes, what happened to her was tragic, but she isn't what happened to her. And so she she actually manages to to do things that so many women are advised not to do. Don't make a big deal out of it. Keep it quiet. Don't cause problems. We we don't want to, you know, stir up the gossip. We don't want to, you know, slander a godly man. I mean, she is bringing charges against the future king of mm -hmm. Israel here. And so she is actually superior to Bathsheba in uh, in a lot of respects uh, as far as her response. But um, this is also a reversal from the original Tamar. Because if you remember, Tamar back in Genesis, when she was, um, she'd married Judah's son. We're told God doesn't like him. We're not told why. God kills him. Then she marries the second son in a Leverite marriage. He refuses to get her pregnant like he was supposed to do. So God kills him. Judah sends her back to her father's house and says, you know, I'll call you when the, when the third son gets old enough. But Judah decides not to because he's convinced the reason why his sons died isn't because they're horrible people, but because of this woman. Mm -hmm. And Tamar says, uh-uh, 
I'm going to get what's mine. And what is mine is a son. And so she dresses, again, the clothing. She dresses as a temple prostitute. And she goes out and deceives Judah and brings him into her bedroom. She conceives. She has the son. This is a son who becomes great, great, whatever, grandfather to David and to Tamar. And so I, I believe it would be six because it would be the same, same number. Anyway, uh, but. The, the reversal here is this Tamar doesn't put on clothes to hide her identity. Uh, she doesn't um, try to conceal what's happening. She actually uses the clothes to reveal. And so it, it is this very beautiful um, reversal because both women are strategically using the, the clothing for the same purpose. And the, the purpose is, I need justice for a wrong that's been done to me. And I, I think it's a really interesting commentary that the women's clothing becomes this tool. And I think most women know that that clothes are something we use and we use it to express our mood. We use it to uh, to demonstrate who we are. We make statements with our clothing all the time. Uh, I've been told that this says I'm a grandma. But anyway, uh, the, the, the clothing is important because this is the message that is sent to the world. And this is how women without a voice in these cultures spoke up. And so it's, it's a very interesting thing. And it makes me wonder when we as women today feel like we have to dress a certain way in order to convey certain messages, are we saying we don't have a voice? I, and I'm not saying that's, that's right. I'm just wondering if that shouldn't be something we, we should consider. And I'm saying, and, I, I, I see her not concealing Amnon, uh, being very blatant in the attack, uh, in the um, episode and what's going on here because of what Absalom says. And I also should note, too, that in this moment, uh, before we get to what Absalom says, she's also being very much like Hannah. Because Hannah was a woman who, who saw injustice and she she did something scandalous in order to address it. She went to the um, tabernacle alone. She, she went before the ark and she prayed. And remember, she changed all of history in that moment. And again, we talked about Hannah before, but Hannah also uses clothing. She uses clothing in her case to clothe her son in the destiny she knows he should and would fulfill. Verse 20, uh, we have Absalom. He, he, he finds Tamar and he says, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? So Absalom knows exactly what's happened and he knows who to blame. So this is the reason why I say Tamar isn't covering up for Amnon. Later, we're going to find out David knows. So there's no secrecy about this. It, it's just, it's out there, at least within the family, it's out there. Verse 20, and Absalom's still talking. He says, now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in Absalom's house. Okay, so this was really confusing. Uh, if you just read what's in this verse and you don't have the rest of the story, it sounds like he's just dismissing her out of hand. Now, Brueggemann, he, I'm just going to read what he wrote because I think he says it well, because, I mean, it's Brueggemann. He always says it well. But um, 
He says, one, even Tamar might have thought Absalom was dismissing her rape as unimportant. As it turns out, Absalom intended to relieve Tamar of the burden of rage and resentment. Absalom assures his sister he will carry her wrong in his heart. As the narrative makes clear, Absalom does indeed carry the humiliation of his sister until he can work revenge for her, which is going to become very obvious as we move forward. Now, Alter interprets this as Absalom saying that Amnon's their brother, so Absalom's going to have to bite his time. He's going to have to kind of do a little plotting and, and a little uh, subterfuge in order to carry out his revenge. It's not going to be swift, but she doesn't have to worry about it. It's going to happen. And I think that the, the story definitely makes clear what the wording kind of leaves a little, uh, it's a little muddy. So Absalom takes Tamar into his house. Uh, she's not going to live at David's house anymore. Remember that David had sent for her. And uh, David had, had proven that he was unable to actually protect her because David was the one who sent her to Amnon's house. And we can't forget that. David was the one who put her in that situation. And we also should remember David's sin is what unleashed all this chaos in his own house in the first place. So. In this moment, Absalom very much is acting as the kinsman redeemer. Now, I mean, there's no marriage involved. He, the, he's not marrying his sister, but he's providing her with security mm -hmm. and protection. He's making sure she's, she has that provision. And so there is this little slight allusion to Ruth here. And um, so we're going to, there's going to be more that actually reinforces the fact that this is a, an allusion to Ruth. Again, we got to get there because this writer, all the threads. Verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Great. What's he do? Not a thing. What's he say? We're not told. For all intents and purposes, David's silent. He does absolutely nothing for her. And not only does he not do anything for her, he doesn't do anything about the Amnon problem. And the thing is, this again takes us right back to the rape of Dina, back to the Genesis 34. Because when Dina's raped, remember, he never said anything. He, he never addresses the problem. It's only Simon and Levy who speak up and say, this is not going to go unaddressed. We're not going to act like this is okay. You don't get to treat our sister like a prostitute. And so. Tamar at this point is wholly reliant on Absalom because her father is completely inactive. He's not being a father. And it's the same as when Dina is reliant on Simon and Levy. Now, the thing with Dina's story, what we're never told is how Dina feels about it because she never speaks. Tamar says, uh-uh, you're going to hear my voice. You're going to know how I feel about this. Dina doesn't have that voice. So the fact that Tamar speaks up is, is very important and it's very significant. And we aren't even told that, you know, Dina may have wanted to marry the Prince of Shechem. We, we, we don't have that bit of information as we talked about in the, the previous episode. But the other thing is, what would David say? Because we took that nice little long break where we talked about David and Bathsheba, and then we went to Psalm 51, and we got to spend a few weeks there, and we weren't having to, to keep digging through all the muck of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, 
you have David and Bathsheba's story concludes in chapter 12, and then we pick up with Tamar and Amnon in chapter 13. So there is no break. It's, this all happens on the heels of what David had done to Bathsheba. And so the fact that Amnon does this now, is he really going to pay attention to his father? I mean, David's lost all credibility as the moral compass of their family at this point. Right. He, he, I, he, he's ruined it. I, all Amnon had to go is, you know, sure, dad, what about Bathsheba? But we also need to bear in mind, this is the second phase of the punishment that David had pronounced on himself. Because when Nathan, the prophet had, had, gone to to david and said uh you know there's this guy with this lamb and the rich guy killed the lamb and david became so outraged that he said the person who did this deserves to pay fourfold so the first payment that david's house is going to pay is in the death of the son with david and bathsheba where i went through that now the second element of that payment is the violence he committed against Bathsheba is now happening to his own daughter, the daughter he should have been mm-hmm. able to protect. And the final third and fourth payments are going to be the deaths of Amnon and Absalom. And we're going to talk about why that's, that's such a high cost. Um, so verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. So all of that's been set up. That that has been the the uh, prelude to the main story, and the main story it really is about Absalom and David, and Absalom has now arrived on the scene. We were introduced to him in the first verse, but he has not been a part of the story up until he approaches his sister Tamar and he asks her that question. And the writers delayed bringing him into the the story. Because his actions within the story are actually delayed. Which we, we have some questions there. Why did it take so long for Absalom to act? Uh, because when we pick up in the next verse, what we're going to find is it's two years later before Absalom actually does anything. Now, one explanation is he's actually giving David time to respond. He's making 100% certain that David isn't going to do anything and that, you know, maybe over these last two years, his, his anger and his rage just grows. I mean, we, we've all had that situation where we're waiting on the person who is responsible to step up and do the right thing. And how frustrated do we get when they don't do mm-hmm. it? The, the second um, reason is to give... Uh, or second possible reason is to give Amnon a a false sense of security so he can carry out his plan. So we're going to pick up in verse 23. After two years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which was near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's son. So there's some debate about exactly um, where Baal Hazor is. Uh, we, We really aren't sure. I found like different translations of what Baal Hazor is. We know Baal means Lord. Uh, it can be either just like a sir or it could be addressing mm-hmm. a god. Oh, we, we don't know. Uh, but one of the more popular uh, ideas about where it could be located is that it was somewhere between Shiloh and Gibeah, which is very interesting if that's true because now this connects us back to Judges because Shiloh is where Eli's 
sons had been abusing the women who who worked in the temple or in the in the tabernacle and Eli failed to correct his sons which connects us you know that's another story that it connects us right back to because David once again just like Eli just like Jacob he's not speaking up if it's Gibeah that's also you know Gibeah being on the other side now we have that connection back to the Levite and the concubine and where she has been raped and she's been killed and her body's been dismembered. And so we we have almost from one end of the judges actually to the other end. So because we judges opens with Shiloh and it closes with Gibeah. So very interesting um if this is the case, if that's where it is located, because even the location would be very symbolic. Now the time for sheep shearing. This is a time for friends and family to come and gather around. There's going to be big feasts. There's going to be big party. We already know that. Why do we know that? Because in 1 Samuel 25, when we had Abigail and Nabal, this is when David goes to them and says, you've got so much food and we've been so good to you. Our guys have, have guarded your flocks. We've made sure none of your men were hurt. And so as payment, you can feed us because that's what you're doing right now. You're mm. feeding the community. And of course, Nabal, um, refused that idea and when Nabal refused you know David swore he said I'm going to kill everyone and Abigail intervened and, and she saved everyone and then of course when Nabal finds out what Abigail does because Abigail tells him because that's the kind of woman she is he has what appears to be a stroke of some sort and then at the end of 10 days God strikes Nabal dead and she becomes the wife of David so um, we need to keep that in, our, in the background of our mind for what's getting ready to happen within this story. So we're told that Absalom invites all of David's sons. So first off, we have a reversal from Nabal because Nabal didn't want anyone there. Absalom wants them all there. This is one of those instances, too, where all does not mean all. And, and I know you're going to hear that on the Internet. When the Bible says all, it, it's not necessarily exactly all and we know that because he invites all the king's sons but he's got to go back and invite Amnon separately so there there seems to be this blankest invitation that goes out and then there's a special uh, singling out of Amnon so um the story doesn't include the names of the other brothers as we've seen with the writer of Samuel before if you're not important to the narrative, he doesn't talk to it doesn't talk about it. He he's very selective in the details uh he he includes. And this story is very focused on Amnon and Absalom. Now, the obvious reason is that they're the main characters. They're they're the main participants in this story. Mm -hmm. But the other reason, and I think this is very likely, the other possible reason is they're the front runners for the crown. Amnon is the oldest son of David, so he's heir apparent. I mean, there, there's just, that's the way it works. But Absalom is, every time he steps onto the scene, he takes the spotlight, good or bad. He is the one that, that your entire focus is shifted to. And so within even this, this, this chapter itself with what we're seeing, we're already seeing this huge contrast between Amnon, the heir apparent, and Absalom, the runner-up, or the, 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 the spare, if you want to go back to that old saying, 
you had to have uh, an heir and a spare. Sure. So Amnon's, the, you know, Absalom's the spare. The rest of the kids are just window decoration. Um, but you know, Amnon, he, we start out the chapter. He's lying in bed. He's sick. He's gasping his words out. He he's pretending. He's uh relying on the advice of other people. Uh, you know, he's he's asking dad for favors. Where Absalom, I mean, he's keeping his own counsel. He's not talking to anyone. He asks for nothing. He's taking care of business at Baal Hazor. Uh, he provides for his siblings instead of asking that a sibling provide for him. He he jumps to Tamar's defense. He he doesn't plot out how he's going to react to his sister. He he actually immediately. Oh, sorry about that. Forgot to say, um, do not disturb. Yeah. So actually, it was on Do Not Disturb. I evidently didn't have the screen locked. Um, so <clears throat> one moment that as our mother, and I want to make sure that she knows that I'm not ignoring. Yeah, tell her give you eight minutes. Uh, so <laughs> eight minutes, yeah. So, um, but we like Absalom in the story because he's everything Amnon isn't. He, he he's just he's the stand up guy in this moment. So verse 24, and Absalom came to the king and said, behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and, and his servants um, come to join us with this feast is what's going on. I mean, David knows what's happening here. He's familiar with this tradition. And, uh, you know, it's, hey, dad, it's party time. Come have a good time with us is basically what, what he's saying. But verse 25. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. And he pressed him, but he would not go, but he gave his blessing. So there's two ways to read this. The first one is as a critique. We know that David likes to stay home now. This is what got him into trouble to begin right. with. He, he, he wants to stay home. And so, you know, and... and Anyone who's taken care of uh, aging parents, like obviously we do, uh, you know this speech. You know, it's just too much trouble to get out. You kids go have fun. You know, it's, it's normal. It's, it's typical. The, the second way to read it, it's a little bit more generous. And it says that, you know, David's being sensitive, hosting a king and everybody who comes with him, the, the bodyguards, the servants, the, the royal court, the counselors. They have to be fed. They have to be uh, housed. And, and, you know, it was actually even in Europe, when you talk about uh, royalty visiting someone, that came at a very high price tag. Yes, it was a great honor, but it could also break an entire estate. And some kings were even known to go visit estates that they wanted to claim as their own just so they could drive them into bankruptcy. Right. So, you know, this, that's something that didn't, didn't change. And Absalom may very well have known that his dad would turn him down. And this may have just been a ploy to set up his next move because he seems like a guy smart enough to do this. But he did get one very important thing. He got David's blessing. And once again, we're reminded of that parallel back to where David's words bring catastrophe. Whether we're talking about sending Uriah out with the message, whether we're talking about sending servants to go get Bathsheba. Or whether he's the one who says, whoever did this needs to pay fourfold. Or sending Tamar to Amnon's home. David needs to think about what he's saying more. That's all I'm, 
it's amazing that a man so good with words created so much trouble. But also it kind of makes sense that if he has the power to to do so much good with his words, that he also has the power to do so much damage with them. Mm-hmm. So verse 26, um, then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's son go with him. So there's a couple of questions this, this would cause us to ask. Uh, why does Am- Absalom have to ask for special permission for Amnon to join him? There, you know, Amnon was a, is a man at this point. He's got his own house. He's got his own royal advisors. He's got his own servants. And so he was running his own business at this point in his life. But Absalom is having to say, hey, dad, give me permission for this grown brother of mine to come join us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why is David so reluctant? Uh, You know, there's a possibility that as the heir apparent that Amnon did uh, have special considerations and special... um, protections in place over his life to make sure that he survived uh that 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 wouldn't be unusual for uh for a prince it it could be that david suspected that absalom wasn't as okay with what went on as absalom had made it appear for the last two years maybe absalom going hey you know it's two years do you think maybe everyone's over all that (laughs) well and that's that's the beauty of the writer, because the writer doesn't give you time to actually stop and think, OK, is as Absalom changed his mind, is Absalom going to um, kind of try to bring some reconciliation to the family now? Because he immediately jumps in with verse 28, which reveals Absalom's attempt. And the writer forces us to look back at David and ask those questions instead of Absalom. And because the focus is. Yes, these are the guys doing the deeds, but this is where it all began. It began with David. David's the one who caused all this. So um, verse 28, he says, Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. Now, in this, Absalom is taking a page from his great, 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 whatever grandmother's book. If you remember um, Ruth, who waited until Boaz's heart was merry with wine and she marked where he laid down so that she could go and approach him in the night. Mm-hmm. But we also have this reversal because instead of protecting and giving life through this time of you know being drunk and merry of heart, uh, we have the taking of life. We also have uh, a throwback to that Naval and Abigail story, because, again, we've got the sheep shearing. This is when it happens. Mm-hmm. We have the merry heart. Naval had a merry heart. That's whenever he suffered what was a stroke. But the thing is, we're told specifically God strikes him dead. And Absalom, in this moment, note the language do not fear have i not commanded just like david used god's language when talking to mephibosheth now absalom is using the same language when he speaks to his servants and oh yeah i mean it's it's really amazing how he pulled the writer pulls this in and amnon who had acted like a fool is now going to die like a fool 
and it, it's so pointed and so just right on the nose uh, uh, with the Abigail and Naval story. Now, a, another little clue here, too, that we shouldn't miss is this really gives us uh, some insight into Absalom's character and nature. And he is evidently very much like his father in some other respects, too, because he's able to inspire great loyalty by his men. Uh, if his servants are willing to kill the crown prince, the, the heir apparent to David, uh, we're back to flies in the, <laughs> in the room again, uh, you know, they must really believe that he is capable of defending them. Right. And he's a he's a really strong leader already by by this point now one final question uh i'm gonna uh, leave us with before we go because the writer leaves it kind of open-ended uh for the reader to speculate about was amnon david's only uh, absalom's only target in this because the initial invitation was not to Amnon. The initial invitation was to David. And would Absalom have killed David if he showed up at the dinner party? Well, that's something I had never considered. <laughs> yeah, because either Absalom was so sure of David's response, and he knew that he could convince David to let Amnon come as kind of a consolation prize, or Amnon had bigger plans, or Absalom had bigger plans than what happens here. And so we're going to talk some more about maybe what the rest of Absalom's story will tell us about this. Can, and what can we read back after we know what happens beyond this, this fateful uh, dinner party? So okay. well, that's... we've got some more fun things to talk yeah. about. <laughs> well, uh yeah, there's a lot to process there. I I didn't ha not I did not have a lot of commentary on this, just because there's there's so much and it is so dark that I mean, I'm just I'm waiting I'm waiting for you know something, but I, I just I have not got <laughs> a lot to, to say right now. It's uh, just kind of taking it all in and and learning. So um, hopefully everyone out there is enjoying it and learning along with us. Um, if you are, uh, hit us up on the uh, internet Raven Creek SC. On the social media, ravencreeksc.com is where you can find your show notes and some of our other shows. Um, if you would like to help us out, one thing I would ask is if you uh, would subscribe. I realize we don't, we don't ask for a lot of help. I, I know a lot of other places do, but subscribe. Hit the like button. Share, what, share with your friends. Mm -hmm. um, share with people you don't like, too. I mean, they might like it, too. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably, you know. Leave, us a, Leave us a review. Those are the things that really make the biggest impact for for shows like this because it is, uh, you know, all of the Raven Creek stuff is basically run independently with almost a zero budget. Um, so <laughs> it helps us out to to share those things with your friends and uh, gets us in other people's ears. Especially if you think the message is valuable, why wouldn't you want to share? So hopefully we think you. Hopefully you think that what we're doing is valuable. Um, and I'm going to end my spiel there. <laughs> So, <laughs> Emily, do you have anything else? Oh, I was just thinking of nothing else. We get you asking good questions, yes. hopefully. You know, that's, and that's important. That's critical, I think, to reading anything well, is how do you ask good questions? So I'm, I'm great with questions. I may not always have answers, but, you know, we, got, we can got, start there. We're always good with questions and sarcastic <laughs> comments. We've, we've got those typically to spare. So, anyway, 
until next time yeah <laughs> we'll see you uh on the internet thanks bye bye you've been listening to the faith and other oddities podcast a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram if you like what you've heard please write us a review on itunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.